you just you slipped into some sort of like zen voice <laughs> okay hello and welcome to now fear this with becky and marie the podcast about all the things that scare the shit out of us and a few things that don't and sitting across from me right now is my bud becky and my pod coast my pod coast how are you i'm good 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 i don't want to oversell it i'm i'm okay You're medium I'm medium, yeah. Well, Not now bad. I want that to be my fear is that I'm going to ask you what you're fearing or what I'm fearing that you're not doing. No, no, well. no, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got to give me a chance to ask you. I'm trying to be kind of coffee talk casual, and you're like so hyped up about me asking you. <laughs> Calm down. Because I have a good one. <laughs> I finally have a good funny fear. <laughs> I just feel like I can see your face. You're like, she's going to ask me. She's going to ask me. I know. Come on, come on, come on. Uh, Becky, what are you fearing today? <laughs> ah, I'm fearing that people have forgotten how to conduct themselves outside of their homes. And I'm sort of included in that, but mine is not as bad as some of the things. Let me tell you why I say that, because I'm packing for the trip to the UK. And I'm packing, even though we're not leaving for like another nine days, <laughs> because I've forgotten how to travel. You know, like, wait, do I bring that? And I, I'm the one who writes blogs about travel and how to pack. And I'm looking around like, wait, did I forget? I'm going to overpack, but then I'm going to underpack. And then I'm going to bring the wrong things and the wrong weather. And I'm not going to have this. And then that got me to thinking today about how many stories, and you and I probably should do a show on this in a few weeks, stories of air rage there are, and how much abuse flight attendants have had to put up with mm -hmm. in recent months since COVID. Really, I mean, it's always been true, but I do believe that I believe that the Flight Attendance Association says this, that it is escalated. It has escalated to such a degree that, that flight attendants are like fearing for their safety. And did you happen to see or read about the video of that dude who was saying things like, my parents have a million dollars and he was super drunk and the flight attendants had to literally subdue him and tie him up. Like they had to, I think they taped him up. Did you see that at all in the last, about, about three weeks ago? Okay, so I'm gonna save this story because I wanna play the audio when we do a show on I'm fearing air rage or whatever the new version of people not knowing how to behave in public since COVID and people right. taking it out on strangers and, pe and not to mention the mask stuff where you grab people and scream at them. That's a whole, we'll do a whole show on that. I'm fearing my ability to you know, go about in the world. I've flown a bunch, behaving myself. I wear the mask. Even I take a sip of my wine and I put the mask back on. I do not sit there like a jackass because I obey the rules and that's the fucking rules, you know? Um, but I'm just feeling like that I'm going to get to England. It's not like I'm going to the moon. If I need to buy something, I can buy it in England. It's just like, right. I don't know. It's just trying to remember how to be normal again, you know? I think that part of it is anxiety about how to behave publicly like especially if you're a decent person so for me in certain circumstances I don't need to wear a mask but I want to make sure that the people around me are cool with that exactly because you're a considerate human being right. and you don't have to wear a t-shirt that says I'm vaccinated bitches to prove to them why you don't need to wear the mask and it's not worth the, the hassle and you do want people around you to be comfortable and I fear here's what I'm really fearing I'm going to get to the heart of it before I ask you what you're really fearing today. What I fear is my reaction or my husband's reaction, who is a big giant guy, 
and who oftentimes in situations of violence is looked to as someone who could defuse it or break it up, is if I'm on a plane and like those asshole kids, I think it was out of DC or Baltimore, the plane wasn't even able to take off because these kids were going on a trip to like Jamaica or something and wouldn't put their masks on, these high school kids. And the plane never even took off because they refused to, they, so they were finally were like, we're canceling this flight. So all the people who were headed on vacation for the first time since COVID to go to the beach, they had to delay it for a day. And, and that to me, if I'm on that plane with those asshole kids, I really fear for my jail time I'll spend when I assault them. <laughs> so, and then whatever I do, Curtis has to back up, right? I can't just be like that woman the other day at that. Did you see that preseason NFL game where that one dude was arguing with four dudes and a woman? I mean, really violent. He kind of hit him. Like he, he like punched all three dudes, walks away. He's walking away. And the woman throws a beer at his back and then it's on. I was like, lady, you're not going to be involved in this fucking fight with this guy. The dudes who are with you are going to be involved in that fight, you know? Yeah. I mean, James is not a big dude. So any, any fights that we start, probably both of us are going to be in it. Well, you did say the other day that you wanted to uh, join a female fight club. So maybe people should fear you. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, we can talk about this next episode, but I will tell you, man, I do have a lot of internal anger brewing up from everything that's going on. Like sometimes I feel like I could snap. And I think that these people are just so inconsiderate. They're just so inconsiderate. Yes. That's the thing that I think we said this on the show is that people, we're not just talking about law and order. We're talking about order. And if we're all going to live in this world together, even if we don't like each other or know each other or care to know each other, we still got to live in this world together. So let's just try a little bit to have a little bit of respect or at least distance or you know, give each other some, some grace, <laughs> you know? Right. So intelligent, you're intelligent enough to think about the consequences of beating up a teenager on an airplane, right? <laughs> That's, I think that might be the name of this episode already. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I named, okay. So I'm going to ask you what you fear, <laughs> but I want to remind you of the name of our last episode. Are you ready? Yeah. Did a guy named Chili murder the wrong girl for a limping guy named Lucky? Mysteries abound in the Lake Waco murders case. Okay. So like it. Like did it. I sum it up? Did a, did a um, did. limping did. guy named Lucky hire a guy <laughs> named Chili who murdered and raped the wrong girl? <laughs> right. <laughs> Big chested girl confused for a flat chested girl. <laughs> yes. And that's, ladies and gentlemen, that's the death penalty right there. She was a flat chested girl and the other girl wasn't. Right. Why are we even having a trial? Why do we even care about <laughs> the breast size of murdered women? I don't know. What are you fearing today? Uh, I, Gosh, I'm fearing the details like that come up when someone is brutally murdered. But actually, I'm really fearing, are we going to be able to get through the Lake Waco murder case? <laughs> Ever? <laughs> I read all the materials that I have again, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is like an HBO limited series in five parts. It's so maybe what you and I can both be fearing is something to do with emotionally invested law enforcement <laughs> who decide how a case is yeah. going to end and then do an end around to make sure it ends that way, even if it's not necessarily right. Yeah, which we'll talk about at the end. But my biggest fear is that as we talk about reforming criminal justice, it's all being put on the police and the big piece that's being left out of the puzzle 
is district attorneys, prosecution, and the legal system itself, which is where we're getting the outcome of brown-skinned people and black-skinned people ending up in prison for their whole people lives and creating a prison culture. And poor people also. People have the most ending contact up in the people who have poor people and not rich people. A poor person could steal 20 bucks and go to prison. A rich person could steal 20 million and never see a day in court. Right, right. So just, we left off with kind of a cliffhanger. You want to sum up? Yeah, I'm going to sum up. So, oh, okay. Oh, I'm not going to sum up from the very beginning. I was just going to- Just like there were three teenagers murdered. You know, right, that's, so yeah. got it. So Spiegelville Park, near Caney Park, three teenagers were murdered at, at Lake Waco in a very brutal manner. And four people go to prison for it. Um, and that and- episode, if you haven't listened to that yet, ladies and gentlemen, we covered that entire thing. Um, it's really complicated and it's it's really brutal and violent and scary, actually. Yeah. Um, but so listen to the previous episode, like I just said, it's called, um, did a guy named Chili murder the wrong girl for a guy named Lucky? So, sorry, go ahead. Wasn't necessarily prepared to do a recap. So. Do you want me to? I was just listening to the entire episode today. <laughs> All right, Becky. Well, do you want to just give us a brief recap and and I'll start where we left off? Sure. So in 1982 at Lake Waco, three teenagers, Jill Montgomery, Raylene Rice, and Kenneth Franks, were found murdered by some fishermen. And the two girls had been raped as well. And during the investigation, the twists and the turns are so shocking and bizarre. But it, it boiled down to that... This guy who ran the convenience store named Deeb, also called Lucky, he was thought by the really passionate police who pursued this, or one lone wolf cop, really, let's just call him that, um, who decided that it was a murder for hire plot, essentially, and that Deeb had hired these two brothers, plus this other guy named Chili, to murder another girl. And that they had mistakenly, because these two girls looked alike, even though they had different chest sizes. <laughs> uh, apparently the prosecution and the cop story was that these, these three dudes hung out with these three teenagers one night and they went nuts, got drunk, got high, started raping and stabbing and killing and moving their bodies to the other side of the lake. Right. Okay. So well, they, went to prison. they went to prison and within a few months, one of their mothers who was investigating the case herself was also found raped and murdered. Yes. That's where we ended it. When we ended, we talked about Jan Evans, who becomes Jan Price, because she marries J.R. Price on the Waco PD police force. They're both cops. And on March 2nd, 1986, five months after the four guys, Deeb, Spence, and the Melendez brothers go to jail for the Lake Waco murders. So it's five months after they're convicted and go to jail. Um, on North 15th Street, a 54-year-old woman, Juanita White, was found dead. And Juanita White is David Wayne Spence's mother. She was found by her Sunday school teacher. And I think we established that. <laughs> that That's is a good reason to go nice, to church. That's one of the nice reasons to go to church, <laughs> that people will come look for you. <laughs> but they find her body. And then seven hours after they find her body, they go back to the crime scene, police do to do a little bit more work. And they discover the house has been broken into a second time. And this time someone has clearly rifled through all of the paperwork that Juanita has been 
gathering in her search for justice for her son, David Wayne Spence. There were some people, not just her, who believed that they were either railroaded or at the very least the police found the wrong people or jumped right. to the wrong conclusion. And Juanita was kind of a badass. She was conducting her own investigation. She was going to all these local people, to bars. This is basically how she was spending her time as like a, a junior investigator. And then when she got stuff, she would feed it to the attorney. Well, a few days before her death, she had gotten Robert Snelson, who was one of Truman Simmons's jailhouse snitches, to recant his testimony on tape. And she gave that to her attorney. And then she called her attorney, Russ Hunt, two days prior and said, I think I found out exactly what happened and I have a witness. And she wasn't talking about Snelson because she'd already given him that tape. She was like, I've talked to somebody that was there and they can tell Oh, somebody else. Yes. Oh, okay. So she doesn't want to tell her attorney over the phone because she thinks her phones are being bugged. Now, I don't know if they're being bugged or not, but she definitely thought they were being bugged. And that she was being followed and everything. And that she was being followed. Anyway, two days after that call, she was dead. Maybe it's a coincidence, but it's a crazy coincidence for sure. Did I tell the evidence last episode that they found there? You mentioned that there was a footprint, um, a boot print on the door that kicked in the door or something. And it was a fingerprint, right? There was a footprint and there were teeth marks on her body. She had a torn ear, a broken nose. We know she was raped, sodomized, and beaten. And... Then, of course, somebody had rifled through the house. So that was the evidence that we had at that point. So all the evidence gets shipped off. And there was DNA evidence, by the way. So it gets shipped off to the Dallas lab by the Waco Police Department. And Price gets a curious phone call. She says, hey. Price uh, is the police officer. Sorry. Yeah, the female police officer, Jan Price. She gets a call from the Dallas, it's like, CSI and they're like hey just a heads up Vic Fizel the DA's office and the sheriff's department are taking this case over and Truman Simmons is going to be the lead investigator now Truman has now been he's now the lead investigator and this is being taken away from Price it's just super weird right this is like a few days after this happens it's not protocol at all That's no 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 and lo and behold, within days, Simmons has a suspect. Let me guess. Word on the street. Word on the street. <laughs> says that a local ne'er-do-well by the name of Calvin Washington was seen in her vehicle. So he's got to be the guy. Simmons gets together like a whole theory of what happened. And then he gets a tip from an informant that the clothes that Washington wore that night are at Washington's sister's house. So they get a warrant. They go to the sister's house. They find a sweatshirt with a tiny drop of blood on it, which they're calling the bloody sweatshirt. Oh, man. (laughs) And they find a shoe that they think matches uh, the shoe print on the back. And then in comes Jim Hale, the forensic odontologist. The bite mark. Oh, And so they make a mold of Washington's mouth. And sure enough, it's his teeth marks. So last episode, it's important to remember, if you haven't listened since the day it came out, because I know all of you do that, 
forensic odontologist, his testimony was key in convicting the guy, Chili, because he claimed that this particular bite mark matched up with a supposed interest. Uh, oh my God, what is wrong with me? David Wayne Spence, AKA Chili, they had surmised that he bit Jill and they matched his teeth up to the bite marks on Jill. And therefore that was one of the reasons why he got convicted. Thank you, Jesus, I could not get that out. This is, all, <laughs> this is tough, this is really tough. This is like, Jesus, we're in trouble today. Are we doing okay? What's wrong with us? I'm gonna slap myself, all right, okay. here we go. So you know how a lot of filmmakers or artists, I mean, musicians too, their songs all sound the same. Yes. What's that, Chris Martin, what's that band? Uh, I don't know. You know. I know, but I don't want to know, so I pretend like I don't. Oh, well, then you're leaving me hanging, so just tell me what the is name it Coldplay? is. Coldplay? Coldplay, thank you. If Coldplay was playing in the background, it would be like the same song over and over again. Yeah. And I know artists that do the same thing, and what I call it is you're cannibalistic of your own work. Mm-hmm. So this guy mm-hmm. Truman is cannibalistic of his own work. Well, if criminals have an M.O., Truman had an M.O., because... Every case he solved, and by God, he had a high solve rate of these murders all over Waco. It was always a jailhouse snitch because that Truman was feeding information to jailhouse snitches. And then they would feed that information back and it was treated as evidence. So there's that. He's Anytime he can bring this guy Jim Hale in, it's like every time he solves a case, he's got a blueprint for it. Now, I know one of the reasons why he worked alone is because nobody wanted to work with him because he didn't fill out reports and he didn't follow protocol. But why wasn't a stop put to this? Mm-hmm. It's strange. Mm-hmm. Yes. After all this stuff comes out, in the beginning, Simmons is trying to include Officer Price, and I'm making quote fingers. He'll go, well, this is what we got. And she'll be like, well, what about this? And what about that? And he'll just be like, don't worry about it, honey. You know, we got it. And right. then after the bite mark evidence thing, Price just was like, I'm not investigating the Washington case anymore. I'm investigating Truman's summons because this guy, this guy is not right. So the guy that's being convicted of Juanita White's murder, this guy Washington, is clearly being railroaded in the same way that the other guys were railroaded. And Price points out that there was another similar murder in that neighborhood of another woman that had all the same hallmarks. So it is possible that her murder itself was a coincidence and that the second robbery was just somebody in, in police or government trying to cover something up. Mm. But it's just as likely that somebody killed her too. I mean, and as I explain more of the situation, I do have a couple of theories as to what might've happened to her. Okay. But the gist of it is, we know that Washington is not the guy and he's being railroaded. And any additional evidence that's coming in is just being ignored. Same thing that happened in the, the David Wayne Spence, AKA Chili case. So Price and the chief of police start their own investigation of Vic Fazell and Simmons. And Vic Fazell has a lot of problems going on right now. I mean, he's being sued. He's being accused of taking bribes and all sorts of stuff in the Henry Lee Lucas case. So this is real turmoil in Waco right now. And he calls a grand jury for the Washington case. And in a move to try and stop Price from investigating him and Simmons, he calls Price to the grand jury because he wants to see the evidence that she's gathered on them. What? Yeah. So in the grand jury, he basically forces her to say, 
that she will stop any investigations into them or the Washington case until after the trial. And so she says she agrees to that. And then when she gets off the stand, she walks over to Vic Bazell and says, just so you know, once this trial is over, I'm investigating you and Simmons, and I'm going to look back into the Lake Waco murders. I told you she was a badass. She's a total badass. She just basically tells him, you're, oh, you're, yourself. you're fucked, dude. Yeah. I'm coming for you. So I want to do that someday. I want to be able to whisper <laughs> in someone's ear that I'm coming for them and it's all over. Ah. <laughs> so after that, Price takes all of her investigation materials and gives it to the U.S. attorney and to the FBI. That was in May of 1988. Washington and his quote-unquote accomplice go to jail. And then a bunch of people, there's a local millionaire businessman by the name of Pardo, a journalist named Frederick Dannon from New York that takes interest in the case. And I mean, this guy is like a badass too. He like infiltrated the triads. And I mean, he did all these really dangerous things overseas. And I think he says that when he investigated the Lake Waco murders, his life felt more threatened in that situation than welcome to Texas situation he's been in. <laughs> but him and Price, the chief of police, all these people now have basically decided their mission is to free all the people that have gone to jail in this case. And the mission of Fazel and Simmons and other people is to do everything within their power to attack and harm the people that are trying to free the Melendez brothers and Spence and Deeb and Washington. That's one of the things that really bothers me is when DAs and cops, after they've decided who did it and they double and triple down and then they try to not even let evidence get tested and they try not to even let DNA get tested and they fight against it. What are you afraid of? If it's all on the up and up, baby, let's all look at it. Open the fucking kimono, you know? Exactly. Because isn't the point is justice. Sorry, real quick. I just watched an episode of, there's a new generation of forensic files and this one DA um, had someone in prison for a arson and murder and it turns out that it wasn't even arson it was an electrical fire mm-hmm. he's one of the ones after they were convicted who heard there's something to this science this you know fire science it's not on the up and up and he hired a new guy to investigate this fire so I was like why aren't all DAs like this why because they care about their re-election and their statistics, I guess. Yeah, that's cool. yeah. So cut to June of 1991. Deeb, the owner of the Rainbow Inn, this young guy who has gone to jail for murder for hire, which the fact that he got convicted is so lame. It's so weak, right? He's a pretty smart guy. And while he's in prison, he sets out to basically get a law degree. So he studies the law until he understands how to write his own documents to send to the court. And he is handling his own case. And he gets the attention of some attorneys who help him out. And he is able to, with their help, overturn his conviction in the Criminal Court of Appeals in June of 1991. So based on that... Now everyone is like, okay, we got to get these other guys out. If the ringleader who hired everyone didn't do it, 
then the chain of whatever what's the, like, yeah what's the motivation for the murders yeah, you, gotta, you gotta start over man this is all based on this guy so simultaneous with this happening the texas resource center have taken on the case of washington and they have gotten his case overturned too and this is based on dna so at this time they're starting to test dna so now there's there's hope that maybe there's DNA from the Waco thing and, and all that. And now we're going to like try and exonerate more people. As the Texas Resource Center starts investigating, they jump in on David Wayne Spence's case because basically it's 45 days till this guy is going to get executed. Wow. So they're trying to get a stay and stop it. At this point, Spence has given up. Like his mother's been murdered. I mean, he's at a very, very low point. And just a side note, in 1976, the Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty. Texas was the first state to execute somebody after that in 1982. Yeah, we and by the end of the decade, 33 of the 116 executions in the country were in Texas. Yep. So the Texas Resource Center kind of started because of the injustices that were going on. Like tons of people were getting executed and there was a lot of evidence to show that many of them may not have committed the crime. And then it gets found out after they're dead. Oh, by the way, yeah. Turns what? out that that guy, uh, yeah, wasn't him, wasn't him. Yeah. And, you know, I just don't buy into this idea that, well, he was a bad guy anyway. Because I think that's what motivates a lot of this is like, we need to arrest somebody. And this guy is going to commit crimes again. And he is a bad guy. So we're still doing a service. Paying attention to just different documentaries and all these things over the years, like making a murderer and stuff, is how common it is for some police officers to frame people that they believe are guilty. They're not framing someone they know to be innocent in their hearts. They're planting evidence because they know they're guilty. It's really not that uncommon. Mm -mm. No. Which is what's happening here. Yeah. So let's look at the list of troubling evidence. <laughs> So number one, jailhouse informants. Almost every jailhouse informant in this particular case has completely been discredited or has recanted their testimony completely. All of them say that they were either threatened with more time in jail or promised some sort of favor in exchange for testifying. And in a lot of cases, the jailhouse informants were shown evidence by Simmons things so they could get the story straight right and the evidence is there every one of these people were getting shorter sentences conjugal visits special privileges it's just like well we never did that it's just a coincidence that every single person simmons testified in front of the grand jury that he's i'm not a da i'm not someone in government i don't have the power to give people special privileges so he's putting it off on them but it's just lame it's well, so he worked in the jail. He worked there. So don't tell me he didn't have the power to do it. He did it. Yeah. I mean, he's just totally caught red-handed. There's not a good excuse. Okay. So then bite mark evidence. You know, you've told me that pretty much bite mark evidence has been discredited as a good source of. Yes. There's, there's overwhelming evidence that it is almost impossible to definitively state this bite came from this tooth. <laughs> um, and one of the issues throughout the entire history of forensic science is when people find a new technology, people will go under oath and testify beyond what they absolutely know to be true. It's the difference between watching CSI and real CSI. 
So on CSI, they'll go, this is 100% the case. We know it was this guy. Where in real life, they go, well, there's an 80% probability that we can exclude 90% of the population. You know, they talk in a different tone than they do on those shows. Same thing with the forensic odontologist in this case, and a lot of forensic odontology was, I'm 100% sure this is the only person on earth who could have had this bite mark. And they did a study years ago where they sent out different bite marks and different evidence to all these different odontologists. And they came back with such different answers. That's not even a human bite or that is connected to that bite. And this other person connected it to a different bite. Yes, it's discredited. Yes. Also, there's probably huge, and I'm talking out of my ass right now. So correct me if I'm wrong, but there's, there are huge similarities amongst teeth. Teeth are not like fingerprints. There's so many different factors for trillions of differences in your DNA and your mitochondrial DNA. Well, everyone generally has the same number of teeth within two or three numbers of teeth, right? So you're already narrowing that field down to everyone's got the big ones in the back and the this one in the front. There's already similarities because there's so few teeth out there. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. We're already starting with similarities here. We're not talking about an animal, a bear versus a cat, right? Right. And some people who have those giant fake cat teeth, they look identical. Yeah. How could you tell those apart if they went and bit somebody? I mean, they look identical because that same dentist did their teeth. Exactly. I think that if there's some like major difference in someone's teeth, that could provide some evidence. Like before I got braces, I got braces in fifth grade. And before that, they had to pull nine teeth out of my mouth to give me the normal amount of teeth so I had like I don't know I was like a baby shark like a werewolf (laughs) no it was horrible I would smile and it was like teeth were spilling out of my mouth it was crazy what I will say is if somebody's missing a front tooth and you can you have that person's arm that's been bit right do the thing onto their like of course you'll be able to exclude some people who aren't missing their front tooth Right. If a fifth grader in my <laughs> class showed up dead with like a bite mark on their neck that looked like two rows of shark teeth, <laughs> then you wouldn't have been me. Too I'm in juvenile hall. <laughs> I'm not getting oh. out until I'm 18. All right. So back on the expressway. Let's go. Right. And and like with this guy, Hale, like whoever Simmons said was the guy, the teeth always matched up. And then once this bite mark evidence was being sent to other odontologists, like you were saying, they had different views on it. So bite mark evidence is out now. And the guy who testified to the biting in the first place, he's already said that was a lie. So we don't even know if Jill was bitten, to be honest. It could have been anything. Exactly, because all that stuff came from a quote, jailhouse snitch. Right. We also find out, and I don't know what the evidence is per se, I I do know of one thing, but all the evidence hadn't been turned over to the defense at the time of the trials. So there was police reports and witness testimony and evidence that was not made available. One key piece of evidence that came out, there were some tapes of the confession that Gilbert and his brother, the Melinda's brothers made. And in Gilbert's confession tape, Truman is heard on the tape saying, all right, we're going to stop the recording now so we can get our story straight. Really? Really. Oh, so that's one piece of evidence. And in the story that Gilbert tells, one of the things that they needed to get straight about their story was 
how do the kids' bodies get from Caney Park to Spiegelville Park? Which I think we talked about that last episode. We did. It would be very hard to, you know, you couldn't drag a body over there. There's like all these barriers. And there's so, no evidence that there was a boat or that any of them had access to a boat. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one part of the story that needed to be gotten straight. So they figured that Gilbert took his truck and loaded the bodies into the back of his truck and drove them to Spiegelville Park. So Simmons impounded Gilbert's truck, left it impounded for two years and never gave anyone access to investigate it. And then once the case was over, he had it demoed. What? Yes. Give me one non-nefarious reason why you would do that. Right. One. So obviously when Deeb gets out of jail, the murder for hire thing goes away. So that's another piece of evidence that it's like, well, how can you keep the conviction? But a lot of forensic scientists and people were brought forward to say that this doesn't fit with a murder for hire. This was like a psychotic frenzy killing. And generally murder for hires don't go down that way. It's like, get in, get out. You know, there's collateral damage. First, let's start with murder for hire. Generally, you get the right person. Right. Um, generally, you murder the right person because this was all predicated on mistaken identity. And then you go and party with these kids, supposedly, and then you go and start raping and stabbing, that's not how it works. Right. Let's talk about the different people who could have possibly done the crime. Okay. Kenneth Franks's father had contacted police on the night of the murder, saying that he was worried about his son. Um, and police brought him in. He was hysterical when they found Kenneth's body, which is understandable. Yeah. And he said some cryptic things like he said he was there with them the whole time and that he knows what happened but later he recants what he says and says i just meant i i was there with them in spirit and the police do a polygraph and he fails it now i know you're not a big polygraph person but it's just something to know <laughs> Um, and the police were looking at the father. Also, uh, a witness came forward. I'll read you this. The reporter from New York on April 1983 received a letter from a young woman who wrote to say that her boyfriend had been at Caney Park and seen Kenneth with the girls in the Pinto. Later in the evening, the woman wrote she saw Kenneth in the front seat of a maroon Lincoln Continental with Robert Fuel, a local reverend with a fondness for teenage boys who often cruised through Waco parks. Her personal opinion, she concluded, was that this guy Fruel had something to do with it. But Fruel is no longer alive. He was stabbed to death by a teenager in 1991. Guess he chose the wrong boy to mess with, eh? Yeah, so that was one theory. And oh. then here's the theory that I think is most convincing. Ooh, okay. There is a local, another local ne'er-do-well. <laughs> Waco. <laughs> by the name of Tab Harper. That's a pretty good name, right? Tab? Tab. Like Tab a soft Harper. drink? Yeah. There were 17 eyewitnesses to 
seeing Kenneth and Raylene and Jill at the park. And they all gave reports to the police. None of them, zero of them mentioned David Wayne Spence or the Melendez brothers or anybody that looked like them. One of the problems with that for the police and the DA is that both of the people who like Chili and the Melendez brothers, they said that they'd partied with them. They didn't say we snuck up on them by hiding behind a tree and waiting till they were alone. They claim they were with them drinking for a while. Right, exactly. Can't have it both ways. This guy, Tab, actually also told people he killed them. How many motherfuckers are going to confess <laughs> to this murder? <laughs> I mean, it's, what's going on with people in Waco? It's like, hey, what did you do last weekend? You know those murders? That you was murder? That was me. <laughs> <laughs> who has two thumbs who just committed that murder right at him <laughs> so tab was a drug dealer and tab hung out with two other guys that were like his henchmen they went everywhere together and they would do drug deals with the local teenagers there is some evidence that kenneth was somehow involved in the drug trade and that kenneth and the girls were drug users and apparently, Kenneth owed a drug dealer $3,000. One of the reasons he may have been going to the park was to meet with the drug dealer. So I'll just read you uh, this from the Texas Monthly article. Let's see. Dan and Felt, there was a much stronger case to be made for the involvement of Tab Harper, whom witnesses had seen in the park that night and whose name he had encountered in police reports and interviews several times. There's another woman working with the reporter who claimed she had seen Harper's van next to the Pinto that night. And based on his reporting, he felt sure Harper was involved. He was allegedly both a drug dealer and close to Kenneth and had two henchmen with him that night. Harper was no longer alive to talk. He had killed himself with a shotgun in 1994 when police tried to arrest him after he attacked an elderly couple with a knife. Makes more sense to me that given that there were three teenagers and that the two girls were raped, that more than one perpetrator is involved. That, yeah. You know, I think it's more difficult to subdue two people while you're raping one and then, and then you go rape the other one. So anyway, I think the Tab Harper theory is a pretty good one. But according to articles that I've read, many other suspects were implicated and never brought forward. Hmm. Okay. Basically, that's all the evidence that's mounted up that seems completely flawed. The case seems completely flawed. But for whatever reason, without reading the case, I couldn't tell you. Um, they let out the one dude and left everybody else there. Yeah, so basically... Um, the recap on what happened to everybody is mm -hmm. David Wayne Spence or, or Chili was executed. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony Melendez uh, died in prison. He had been suffering from multiple maladies, including bone cancer and kidney failure. And then mm -hmm. I believe the last Melendez brother, Gilbert, died from HIV complications in 1998. And then uh, Munir D uh, got out of prison, but died of liver cancer in 1999. Hmm. Uh, pretty much anyone that could have 
they all died in prison the original mm-hmm. like waco murder guys mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know and if you if you ask simmons or vic Vizel, they'll say just read the transcripts of the trial and you'll see that they're guilty i mean in all fairness i haven't read the transcripts of the trial <laughs> um and and in all fairness it is still possible that they did it i'm, I'm just being straight but it doesn't matter to me at this point if they did it or not. Their rights were violated. Yep. And a lot of people will say, well, why would an innocent person admit to committing such a horrible crime? And I mentioned this last episode, but I'll, I'll mention it again. Gilbert Melendez was told, and you got to say, this is a poor Hispanic guy in Waco, Texas, who's already, yeah. In 1982, who's already committed a rape. He's already served prison time. And he's being told by Truman Simmons, look, man, you know, you can either go to jail for the rest of your life or death penalty, which is it going to be? And the National Registry of Exonerated Persons, this is in the Texas Monthly article, says that one in five of 87 exonerated inmates in in 2013 pled guilty for a lesser sentence yep so we've got to consider that you have sometimes people that are um mentally not completely capable of defending themselves either they have a really really low iq or they have a disability um in some cases you have people that are very uneducated very poor don't know their rights and they end up with a um, court-appointed attorney who has 50 other cases on the same day Mm -hmm. who who just says just plead it out did you watch that documentary a few years ago about defense attorneys one of them was in philly it's fascinating they took some of them in new york and philly i can't remember another place it was so disheartening though like don't watch it if you're not sure about whether or not you want to live because you will not after this but it's really really informative of just how much they're overworked and how little they're paid and you up against the entire state and the city and the county funding a trial against you yeah yeah and i i think people have an attitude that well if you weren't up to if you were, weren't up to bad things, then you wouldn't be getting in trouble. But that's not always the case. No, and I'm tired of that. I'm tired of that yeah. mentality. Guilt by association, or where you did something bad before, or right matters. Police procedure and prosecutorial procedure matters. It matters. And if your hands are dirty, then everything you've touched is dirty. This is one of those cases where there's lots of sources out there and the evidence is just so tainted by corruption that at this point it's going to be hard to know yeah it's so frustrating all these years later we may never know that's the problem when police get overzealous right right exactly it's Stephen avery comes to mind because i don't know if he did it or not but it's so tainted that he shouldn't be in prison i mean that's right i mean a lot of people will say if you analyze the evidence it kind of seems like Stephen Avery did it but that also doesn't mean his rights weren't violated to the point that he should be set free exactly well his 
his cousin sure as fuck didn't do it. I'm more guilty than than Brendan Dassey is. So, um, and I'm not guilty. <laughs> um, part of the issue too, right, is what is supposed to motivate police officers? Because if it is statistics on closing cases, then they're going to want to close the case no matter what. That's the wrong motivation. That shouldn't be what motivates them. So again, yeah, it needs to be a paradigm shift. Otherwise, you're like they say on the wire, juking the stats. Right. And also from the wire, one of the things that I was thinking about while you're talking about this case is Omar, probably the best television character ever written. Mm-hmm. He said when he was arrested, so I think it might, might have been season one, when he was arrested for something that the cops pretty much knew he didn't do, but they also knew that he robbed drug dealers and probably murdered some of them. And he's just sitting there looking at, at McNulty, you know, and he goes, if I didn't do this, somebody else out there did. If I didn't do this, somebody else did. Right. And I just can't get past, where did he say it to bunk? Sorry. Anyway, I just can't get past that on this. If they didn't do it, somebody else did. Right. Right. And I don't know what the point is, if the point isn't to punish the actual person that did it i just don't know what the point is i feel like victims are manipulated and they're brought into this when you read further on this case of course the jill and raylene's family were just like in absolute hatred of david wayne spence and the melinda's brothers and a lot of the times because they're hurting so badly and they want justice, they're also putting pressure on the police to catch somebody and to put somebody in jail. It's hard too for people who are relatives and loved ones and friends of murder victims. Once they're told by police, this is who did it, it is almost impossible to undo that despite all evidence to the contrary. Because it's too much dissonance, too much psychological and emotional pain to undo what you've thought and believed your whole life or, or how many years. But I read one thing in the recent years, I believe, of one of the brothers of, of, I think it was Jill, who had, towards the end of the lives of these men in prison, had come around to thinking that maybe they didn't do it. Yeah. He was open to the possibility that maybe what he had believed and the hatred he had in his heart for that whole time was wrong or misplaced because he was misinformed. That to me is such a tragedy too, to hold hatred in your heart for someone and to wish ill on someone for any reason, because it just causes you pain. But then to find out if you aimed it at the wrong person, perhaps that's too much. I'm sorry. It's too much, man. We're supposed to be a comedy show. Want to break up with us right now? Jesus. Want to break up with us? If you're still listening, I'm really sorry for the last hour. It got really dark. (laughs) It got really fucking dark. Well, I think the whole idea of innocent until proven guilty is really hard for people. And the media does a really good job of convicting people in advance. And people make up their minds and they take sides. I can tell you so many documentaries and things that I've watched where people decide in advance of the trial and they rally for their position, almost like it's a sporting event. Mm-hmm. Um, like people will say things like so definitively, like they were there. Right. I know that he didn't do it. I'm like, how do you fucking know? I don't know that Maria, I don't know you didn't do it. I mean, I love you, but I'm not going to go to a rally and go, I know she didn't do it. I wasn't there. Right. Did you do it? No, I didn't do it. <laughs> but there's been a move for a long time in our culture 
and I don't want to maidenhead off on this, but the idea that evidence and Socratic theory and those types of things are less value than just emotional things and word of mouth and anecdotal things. And I just find that to be insane. I'm not saying you can't manipulate the Socratic method, that you can't manipulate facts. You can. But if we don't use scientific method of some sort, a logical method of some sort to sort this kind of stuff out, then it's just mob rule, right? It's burning people at the stake because they're witches. There was a murder documentary I was watching that took place in Spain. And apparently they didn't have jury trials until 1994. Before that, it was either judges or a panel of judges or mm-hmm. professional. Once they started having jury trials, things it went wrong. Like the people, the citizens of the country were like, no, 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 this is not right. The jury is getting it wrong here. But it sounds like to me, it's like it makes more sense, right? Like if you have a panel of experts who cannot be manipulated by lies about DNA or who, who do you know what I'm saying? Or who don't just go, I'm going to throw away everything I believe because this one witness swears that this and this, that they know how to analyze stuff and that they know how to listen to the evidence and and they're not manipulated by the outside stuff. But then you have those parole boards in the Kenneth Allen McDuff case where supposedly the people on those parole boards were Yeah, but then the people on the parole board are political appointees and they don't know what the fuck they're doing. That's that's the thing too. They are not experts. They do not know what they're doing. Some some random person that the governor was like, go to the parole board. They're like, okay. They don't know. They're idiots too. I'm talking about people who are genuine experts who have been trained and educated and know all the shit who know all the shit you know you know especially when you read about all of the methods of jury selection and how it's been so racist and it and and it's so manipulative that part is really gross to me you know there's there is a game playing aspect to our system currently yeah and i just think there's a better way yeah there's a better way i think There's pros and cons to the jury of your peers and there's pros and cons to experts because inevitably people can be manipulated whether they're experts or not. Like I I think in the case of appointed people, you're still going to have bribery and graft and and all sorts of corruption too in certain areas. So I I don't know, this is a good topic to, to discuss further. Like how the the justice system works and what what other countries do yeah yeah i I know that nothing's perfect but to me just what comes to mind is if i'm a professional juror i am required to keep up with the science right i would know that that bite mark evidence is junk science i'm not going to believe a dude who just sits up there and says that i'm going to know it so maybe i mean there's differences in all different countries like when i watched the sophia murder in court this uh, French woman was murdered and they're explaining the French legal system. And they were saying all that's need to convict something is the translation in English would be a bouquet of evidence. (laughs) A bouquet. (laughs) A bouquet of evidence. Yes. There's also, you know, some countries get it exactly wrong because you're presumed guilty until you're proven innocent. And that's a bunch of bullshit too. You know, I'm not saying everyone else gets it right with the U.S. It's just like, there just has to be a better way. I definitely think de-incentivizing the competitiveness of it that okay obviously the defense attorney is going to do whatever they can but the prosecution should only be doing what's within the bounds of the law you know and they but I also sh- like the way the British do it and 
a lot of ways because I watch all the British procedurals, which if you have not, then I have a list to give you. Okay. Is when they arrest someone, they will say, you have the right to remain silent, but if you, it may harm your defense if you do not tell us now what you later bring up in court. Because what defense attorneys do is they come in and make up an entire story. And even if it contradicts what the person said when they were arrested, they just get to make up an entire, you know, false narrative. Right. Uh, where the guy gets arrested for rape and he goes, I never met the girl. And the defense attorney sees that there's DNA proving and he goes, oh, no, they had an affair. No, no, no. Either you did or you didn't. You know? Yeah. So basically, it's a big jumble. And we need to fix that part of our system. And once we fix that, it also changes the motivation of police as well. Yes. Um, yes, exactly. Anyway, yeah. so thanks for joining right. us for this yeah. long, convoluted exploration. So why even go to law school? Just listen to our show. I mean, <laughs> and if you felt like you were drowning in the lake, uh, you can join <laughs> us in, in that feeling. <laughs> Sorry Barely about all this. Our head above water. <laughs> is that it on Lake Waco? That's it. I need to go. This Curtis is making something on a slow cooker that smells so good. I'm about to cry. I'm like. <laughs> it's, a, it's a ranch chicken noodle casserole thing it's all in the slow cooker it's just super healthy sounds what, what do you mean like, you don't like ranch packets on your chicken <laughs> no it sounds good it sounds delicious <laughs> i don't know what a ranch what packet you? is it's not like ranch dressing you don't know those hidden valley ranch packets that's the best thing uh, in the whole world you put them in sour cream or mayo not, or you cook ranch. them it's just a seasoning it's not like creamy ranch dressing on the noodles and the no it's the seasoning Okay. <laughs> All right. That's you don't, awesome. you don't buy those those ranch packets. They're no. so good. Right. You're not a good Texan. I'm sorry. I'm teasing you. Because <laughs> you're always telling me about your 12 year old boy diet or whatever that you're on. I know. I know. I know. I'm trying to lose weight. I'm trying. I actually have lost weight. You do look like you've lost weight, actually. Thank you. Nice thing you said all day. Oh. Um. Uh, no, I eat crappy stuff too. Like I had hot wings earlier in the week. Oh, oh man, we have such different food tastes. I don't think so. If we travel we'll together, we'll have to eat at different different restaurants. We'll just go to another restaurant for an eight hundred dollar meal at Disneyland, <laughs> like we did that time. <laughs> I'm never gonna live that one down, right? <laughs> I was like, what in the actual fuck? Sorry about that. If you've been listening to now, hear this. <laughs> Go to our website for life-changing content, fearthispodcast.com. And that's all I got for today. You, are you done? We out? We're out. How often now. when you tell people you're from Waco, do they still bring up Waco Davidians? The, the Davidians. I think it's definitely the first thing that people used to bring up, but now they bring up Magnolia. Chip and Jojo. Chip and Jojo have supplanted the Branch Davidians. That's the name of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, see you next time. Next time. Bye. Bye. -bye.